Hi everyone and welcome to a special edition of the 9320 podcast. Um, today's podcast is a follow-on from Steve's excellent podcast with Andrew Detmer, uh, who's one of our US members, on what it's like to be a blue in the US. Um, today, um, it's my turn to host and I'm very pleased to be joined by Chris Apakis uh, to discuss what it's like to be a City fan in Australia. Good day, Chris. How are you? Lloyd, how are you? Thanks for having me on. No worries, mate. No worries, mate. Um, so for those of you that don't know or haven't seen on Twitter, Chris is a good mate of mine from Sydney who I was staying with in Oz and um, traveling around New Zealand with before uh, lovely coronavirus got involved and had to cut the trip short, but there we are. Um, but yeah, I was over there for a good four weeks. You were probably sick of me by the end anyway, Chris. Ah, uh, no, nah, mate. No, nah, not at all. I think our story goes a lot further than just four weeks ago. Yeah, true. Uh, I, I was kind of your professional dog walker whilst I was over there, to be fair, so not totally useless. Um, but anyway, right, so kind of along the same lines as, um, as as Steve's podcast, I mean, first of all, kind of just give us a bit of an intro about like about you, where you're from in Australia, um, and how we met as well. Yeah, so pretty much I'm from Sydney, Australia, um, just in the southern suburbs there in Sydney. And uh, we met back in 2018, December, I think it was, and we were on a bus uh, in a tiny Colombian town. Do you remember the name of it, Lloyd? I can't remember the name, but yeah, I, I, I know the one. Yeah, anyway, my friends and I were doing a 10-week travel through Central America and we were on our first week of our trip and we get on this bus, we were in a group that we were touring the San Blas Islands with in Panama and um, I went, sat myself down at the end of the bus at the back and uh, Lloyd was actually sitting next to me on the other side of the bus and we just got chatting and then we both, turns out we are both Man City fans. Yeah, crazy, eh? Um, crazy. So when, when did you first kind of become a City fan then and like why City? Obviously, you know, being from literally the other side of the world. Yeah, it was, I think, 2009 was my first season supporting City. Um, I grew up in a family that was like soccer was pretty big, like with my uncles and my brother's pretty big on it too. Uh, he's an Arsenal fan. And, um, yeah, he's always just gotten up to watch the, the soccer games and stuff. And then um, I said to him that I wanted to start supporting a, a Premier League team and I wanted to go for Arsenal. And he said to me, he goes, no chance of that happening. Pick another team. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so I just thought, I, don't know, I saw Man City as, as a team on the rise. Um, it was at the time where Rubinho just came on board and I was like, mm, there could be potential here, but I want to make the commitment that if I go for a team like this, like I'm ride or die, whether or not it's going to be a successful journey or not, I'm just going to go for it and stick by them and they're going to be my team. And I think in hindsight, it turned out to be a pretty good decision. No, definitely. I mean, 2009, we were just, well, I mean, we were still, you know, the Abu Dhabi takeover of 2008. So, and we were still kind of a bit shit, uh, but we were starting to mobilize with, you know, like, like you said, I think we'd signed Rubinho. Adebayor might have just about been on board by that point. Big Rocco Santa Cruz, the boys. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any kind of, any particular city players that drew you in early doors? 
Uh, I did like Rubinho, like in his early days um, at Real Madrid. So I think him coming was a little bit of like a, a moment for me where I thought I was going to sort of follow him and, and stick with him. And um, and then Carlos Tevez came and then they had that big spending uh, transfer window when like Colo Toure came in. Um, and also I had a big, big admiration for Shea Given at the time, randomly. My friend, who is a pretty uh, good goalkeeper here, his football idol was Shea Given, and I remember him saying to me that Shea Given was a pretty good goalkeeper. So, yeah, I, I was pretty much like locked in for as a Man City supporter from then. Big Shea, yeah, big Shea. What about? I mean, I've all, I kind of always thought that a lot of Aussies would follow. Everton or maybe Liverpool in the early days because of Harry Kuehl. Um Everton because of kind of Tim Cahill and you know he, he was a kind of particularly in that era of like the noughties late um, t- 2010s like such a such a just kind of constant in the Premier League like, and you know banging the goals in as well. Yeah we had a few good um, soccerers in that time it was a bit of a golden generation for us we had like Mark Viduka we obviously had Harry Kuehl playing at Liverpool uh, we had also Brett Emerton and Lucas Neal playing at Blackburn. Uh, Mark Schwarzer, who did the rounds at a few Premier League teams, uh, mostly at Fulham, actually won the league as Leicester City's backup goalkeeper as well. Then I think won the league the year after with Chelsea. So, yeah, we had some pretty good Aussies at the time and also in other leagues around Europe as well. I must say on um, on Tim Cahill, though, uh, I used to hate him like growing up watching City because it just seemed like he would score against us every single time we played, always from a corner. Um, and that era, like Everton had David Moyes and they were a proper shithouse team and it just seemed every time we played them, Tim Cahill would just pop up and then run off to the corner flag and do his boxing celebration. Oh, it used to proper piss me off that, but good player, I suppose. Um, okay, so kind of like... to. Well, go on, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say he's pretty lethal in the air back in the day, wasn't he? For a small dude, he could uh, he could get up, yeah. He could get up. And he used to always just seem to get up above Anua and Richards or whoever we had at the back at the time. He used to really piss me off. I used to hate playing against Everton, to be honest, in that era. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, just to broaden it out a bit. So who were, who were your kind of like footballing heroes when you like were growing up like watching you know watching football who kind of stood out and really like drew you in because obviously in Australia there are so many you guys have got so many competing sports as it is with you know cricket's huge AFL you've got um, NRL rugby league um, you know the list kind of goes on yeah I think my sort of first um, footballing heroes um, started like for me I identified a few of them in 2004 Um when Greece won the Euros, so my family's obviously got Greek descent and that was a pretty big moment for um, like myself and my family when Greece against the odds won that Euro 04 championship. So a couple of the players in that squad like Karis Diaz, Zakarakis, like those players were just for me, like I oh, idolized them boys. a little bit. Well, like they just overachieved significantly and it at the time and probably still is one of like Greece's biggest achievements in the last 20 odd years, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I also had a pretty soft spot for Ronaldinho at the time. I thought he was the Don, just the stuff that he could do, like on the ball. 
and like just he was just a bit of a magician, wasn't he? Very skillful. Yeah, no, he was incredible. That goal he scored against Chelsea um, in the Champions League with like the outside of his foot, that's one of my favourite goals ever. Um, but kind of <clears throat> being, well, coming being English, coming from the UK, I kind of, I, I hated him as well a little bit because in two, was it 2002? I think it was 2002 World Cup. I remember um, against David Seaman, he scored like, what was it where it was a free kick which was essentially a cross and it pretty much knocked us out um so again more poor moments for me but yeah unbelievable footballer Ronaldinho um anyone else during that era uh I did like Kaká as well um I think that was also uh one of the reasons that I sort of attracted to City that I know it didn't sort of eventuate but I thought to myself like if if they got that close to signing someone like Kaká like then there must have been something positive that he saw in the club to attract him to make that decision or at least to get in the final stages of contract negotiation. Yeah, well, actually, on weirdly on Kaka, there was a video that came out of him playing, uh, I don't know if you've seen this, like five-a-side in yeah, London. Yeah, street football in London. Yeah, yeah, and it turns out one of my mates, Dan Richards, was actually playing in that game um, and said it was just like he was just smoking everyone. Um but equally was quite uh, quite like lethargic, but like just technically, like I mean, obviously because you're playing with a, a previous world class footballer, um, that he was just unbelievable, and uh, he had a beer with him afterwards. So pretty jealous about that. Yeah, that's crazy. And like the players like him and Ronaldinho, like even at the time where I wouldn't consider myself a massive football fan, like you didn't have to be a football fan to admire their skill set. Like, especially Ronaldinho, like, just watching him on the ball was just something else, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, okay, so kind of, this is obviously something that I think uh, Andrew spoke really um, in good detail about in the US. So how, kind of about the Premier League, how big how big is the Premier League in Australia? Like, how how kind of properly is it followed by, by Aussies? And, you know, how does it com- kind of compare to obviously the other big leagues that you guys have got and follow over there. Where does it kind of sit? Yeah, it's funny, the Premier League in Australia. Like, I think personally it's really, really popular. Um, like, it gets a lot of media coverage, like, in the news. Like, we've got um, all games are live and available for us to watch on our Optusport streaming platform. And, like, you've seen it firsthand for us. Like, it's Yeah, just Optus a- is very good. It's just a matter of literally logging in and all the games that are live, you can just click on whatever one you want to watch and there it is, full HD streaming service. And it used to actually be on our paid TV network, Foxtel, um, up until the last uh, media rights deal. So, yeah, it's pretty big in Australia. The only issue, obviously, is um, the timing of the games for us. So they're usually on early mornings and stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later on. But... There, there is definitely a diverse range of fans. In is there, is there like a, is there like a culture of? Because I know it's difficult. Obviously, in the US, there are a lot of, um, there are kind of a lot of support clubs that meet um, at, on well on game day at game time because <clears throat> the the kind of hours are and the game times are so much more accessible in terms of you can actually all meet together and go you know, to a pub or to a bar or whatever or, or kind of watch it. Do you think, like, does Oz maybe not have that, do you think, because of the kind of timing issue? 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, you can go into town and watch the games live for us, like, at the casino or whatever in, like, a big group. But, like, for me personally, if the games are on in ridiculous hours of the morning, I pretty much just like to sort of watch it in the comfort of my own home. Yeah, no, for sure. That's kind of understandable. I mean, yeah, the timings are pretty enough for you guys. Um, yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Do you know of any like obviously in Sydney? Do you know of any kind of wider support city supporter group, or have you seen anything like that? Yeah, there's a few pages on Facebook which I've seen, um, and I've just just sort of a ghost member on. Really, I don't really comment or post much on there. But yeah, there are a few su- sort of supporter pages on social media and stuff but i sort of try and stick away from all that that type of um like social media engagement when i can no fair i think we can all get a bit exhausted by uh social media particularly at the moment given uh so many of us have got so little well not so little to do but more time than uh, even before to be browsing and browsing um okay so you've kind of mentioned it obviously i experienced it when we were when we were when i was over there Talk us through, talk us through like a, a typical game day and like what the typical times would be. Because I think a lot of I think a lot of fans in in the UK and in Europe probably don't really realise like what it entails to be like a Premier League football fan, kind of in Australia, or literally on the other side of the world. Given how totally different the kind of the timings and the scheduling is. Yeah, so I think a 3 p.m. kickoff in the UK would be a 2 a.m. kickoff for us in Australia. So I think that would, yeah, that would pretty much mean a 12 p.m. kickoff in the UK would be an 11 p.m. kickoff for us. So that's probably like our prime time game. And um, also, like the the best games to watch here in Australia would probably be Champions League games where they're on at about 6 a.m. or 6:45. Yeah, so you can kind of like not break, not break your sleep. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I remember when we were, oh God, when we were, when we were together, uh, we woke up, didn't we, to watch the derby against United? What time did we get up for that? It was silly o'clock. It was like three a.m. or something. Um, yeah, it was three. Yeah, and like it, I can't for people that haven't done it, I can't kind of explain how cr- uh, kind of crushing it is to like get up absolutely knackered like you can't really see it feels so weird for me like being used to go going to games and kind of spending you know a few hours in the pub beforehand like having my pie seeing the boys talking about like the team when it comes out you know just chatting the usual shit and kind of the big build-up to literally getting out of bed setting the alarm five minutes before bleary-eyed kind of coming down to watch it take us real dedication and then Bruno Fernandez has a has a nice game and we just completely failed to turn up. That was uh yeah, it must be it must be pretty kind of defeating, yeah, just to to do that. Do you not know, I mean, what what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I agree, but I also have some of my finest memories as a city fan up in the early hours of the morning, screaming in the living room, trying not to wake my family members up while we score a goal like 93-20, for example, or, or us last year against Liverpool. So you take the good with the bad, you know, and you wake up in the morning. Like I know I used to wake up in the morning after watching a game in the early hours and I'd get ready and go to school and I was buzzing the whole day just because we got a win. Well, tell us about, go on, tell us about um, your recollection of the uh, of the Aguero 
93-20 moment and, and game then? Oh, mate, it was, I don't know. I just had a feeling that when we got that got that goal from Dzeko there at the last um, minute, the first minute, sorry, of extra time, that there was a real big chance that we could actually get another one. And oh. when it came, it was like, it was crazy feeling, but it was like one of the happiest like feelings of my life. I couldn't believe it. And to this day, it is probably still like my greatest memory as a City fan. Oh, mate, 100%. I mean, I think is I was in the ground and I didn't think we were going to do it. So fair to you to actually thinking that we were <laughs> we were going to do it. I, I didn't even see Jekko's goal. I had my head in my hands. Um, I did see Aguero's though, obviously. Thank God. Um, what time was that? would that have been then? Because that was like, if I remember, that was like a lovely summer's day. It must have been around... Must have been around three PM in the UK because I think they start all the last games at the same time, don't they? Yeah, they do. It was, I think, it was three PM UK time. Uh, it was, a, it was a special, it was a special, special day. And I'll be honest, I thought our, our last Champions League game at Real Madrid was up there too. Obviously, not to that extent, but I remember like you and I went to all the effort to go out and watch that game in the pub in the early hours of the morning in New Zealand and. I know it wasn't three AM, but it was well worth it for us in the end, wasn't it? No, that that was that was great actually. In New Zealand, because the time difference is slightly different, I think that game was what was it eight AM or something? Yeah, in New 8 Zealand, which was like yeah, which that's ideal because you, you know you, you're actually you're up then anyway, um, and we managed to find God, we were in Queenstown. We managed to find a rubbish pub. What was it called? It was something pig. But they might, but they they said they'd they'd open the bar pig and whistle. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. They said they'd open the bar for us as well, and they'd put the footy on. So, um, no, that was great. Um, shame that that might not ever be finished off, but we'll uh, we'll have to see on that front. Bit of a weird one, but yeah, I yeah. mean, so good watching that. Um, the Bruyne just kind of stepping up. Um, okay, and so I, me- I remember when we got there as well. The guy couldn't even get the the channel on. At the start, me and you looked at each other as if to think that we potentially weren't going to be able to watch it. Oh yeah, we've been buoyed off by that guy. Yeah, no, it's weird, isn't it? And then we met that dude yeah. from called Paul, who was from Chorley, um, like who just happened to walk in the bar. He was a City fan. Bizarre. Yeah, your mate does, does my mate? Yeah, not your mate. Um, so yeah, one. So you said you don't really dip your toe that much into kind of like social media stuff. Um, in terms of kind of engaging have you I mean have you ever encountered any kind of like snobbery to being a City fan um, from like anyone generally online uh, a, a little bit online but like also like a little bit at school like I copped a little bit of crap for being a, like what they would call a glory supporter but it didn't really phase me too much to be honest like if even like talking about someone from the UK giving me some criticism. I can't really control where I grew up and where I came from. Like I think the fact yeah. that I'm a City fan in Australia should be enough to sort of unite people together rather than cop criticism from where I am based, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, like I agree. people have got to I understand agree. people have got to understand as well that like although Australia is blessed with with many great sporting codes, our football isn't really up to the standard as it is in say Europe or South America. So I think for us to want to support teams that aren't in our country um, shouldn't really be seen as a bad thing. No, definitely. And I, I would say from from having been over there um, and kind of spent time watching football and 
kind of doing what you guys do. Um, to be honest, I think there's just as much dedication in, um, you know, it's, it's dedication in a different way to kind of match going fans who, you know, obviously the guys that go home underway, obviously unbelievable effort and cost so much money and, you know, you put so much time aside. Um, but, you know, it's it's still dedication just in a very different way, you know, to, um, to be kind of structuring and breaking up your entire day just to, just to make sure you catch every game. Um, so that's why I've always kind of thought, I don't like it when I see kind of people digging um, like non-geographical fans out for not, you know, or for supporting a team that, you know, isn't exactly where they're from. Because like you say, people can't control where they're, where they're born or where they live or whatever. And I mean, like there are fans that, sorry, there, there are fans that sort of, would be watching the games every week and you could have a conversation with that individual about the team and they would know everything that's going on at the club and with the playing group and the coaching staff and this and that. And then there are supporters of the team that you'll find a lot more of those in Australia where, yeah, they might say, oh, I support City and like I want them to win, but I won't get up and watch the games. And I couldn't tell you what last fixture starting 11 was and how they all played. You know what I mean? So I think there's a little bit of a difference. Like there's there's a group of people that like are really big on it and they'll watch it week in, week out. And then there's another group of fans that would sort of just support them, which yeah. is both is totally fine. But I think people might be surprised to know how many of those real fans are actually in countries other than the UK. Yeah, no, for sure. Probably a good time for me to give a shout out to Dan Prince as well, who uh, who is one of our members and a big city fan who lives in Melbourne. Um who I know does exactly the same as you and kind of completely breaks his mornings and whatever to to get up and um, and kind of follow literally every game, which is, you know, a crazy effort, to be honest. Um, have you ever kind of, have you ever seen not just like City fans, but like Premier League fans in general, have you ever kind of got the impression that, or seen it online that, you know, they, they kind of think that they're more of a, a true fan than... Than, than say you guys or people in the US or whatever yeah you do and look it's understandable that people would have that perception um, but I think it should be celebrated the fact that their sporting team is so widely recognised globally then, and it should be a positive rather than a negative I mean listening to Andrew talk on the podcast with Steve a few weeks back like he hit the nail on the head and it sounds like it's like the same sort of in the US and I was surprised to hear how big City are over there and I think people would be surprised to hear how big City are here and in other parts of the world as well. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm, I would echo all that. Um, okay, cool. So another kind of angle to this and one of the reasons I thought we should do this and it'd be really interesting is, so you work as a strength and conditioning coach for the Sydney Swans, which is an AFL team um, working with the first team and the kind of, the youth team, so I, I suppose like the under-18s, is it? Yeah, under-18s, 16s, I do a little bit as well, but in that top-end academy program, pretty much from sort of the 16s through to the 19s. Yeah, okay, nice one. So kind of for those of our listeners that might not know, um, I think it's fair to say that kind of sports science, uh, S&C, all that kind of stuff in AFL is kind of widely accepted as kind of some of the most advanced in, in the in the world, like sporting-wise. Um in terms of you guys, getting, particularly getting guys back from you know recovery quickly, um, you know I know there's a lot of stuff done with ACL and knee injuries over in 
Australia in the AFL. Um, but I think it'd be interesting for you, kind of, you know, working with a professional sports team. Kind of talk us through what your like day to day involves as like an S and C coach with working with like professional athletes. Yeah, so for me, being a strength and conditioning coach, uh, a lot of my um, time and sort of responsibilities fall in the gym, like the weight room, and also on the field. Um, more so on the field in the off-season, pre-season uh, part of the year where there's a little less focus on skill development in the pre-season and more of an emphasis on getting the players uh, at a physical standard to actually compete. And once the sort of season goes from pre-season into in-season, then there's a bit of a shift where uh, the physical demands sort of are less focused on in training and then the skills coaches will get more yeah. of their hands on the players. So for us, the, the pre-season is the busiest time for us. Um, yeah, conditioning on the field, um, small-sided game, skill-based conditioning, similar to you see in football. Um, and then in the weight room, a lot of sort of strength-based uh, exercises, just trying to get the players more so at a physical level, but also get them injury resilient and sort of robust and ready to meet the physical demands of Australian rules football. So is it, with, with AFL, is it like... Are you doing a lot of upper body and kind of lower body legs as well? Or what's what <clears throat> what's the kind of focus on? Yeah, there is. So AFL is a pretty unique sport where you have the high demands, if not higher demands of running than like uh, compared to football. Plus you have the physical contact of say rugby. So um, it's a 360 sport. You're also going to be able to kick, catch the ball, jump, land. So there's a lot of other sort of external elements that goes into preparing an AFL footballer um, compared to, say, a rugby league player or rugby union. So upper body strength and power is very important, as is obviously lower body strength and power, and then also um, a lot of sort of work on the hamstrings, calf, glutes, uh, just to try and minimise any soft tissue injuries in those areas. There must be a lot of stress kind of on the joints as well, I assume, from because, you know, some of the jumping and, like, the marks that the guys take you know, so much kind of power and whatever must go through knees and ankles and stuff. How do you kind of, how do you kind of legislate for that? Yeah, for sure. Like it's just also, it's just a matter of monitoring their sort of weekly load and making sure they're not um, sort of getting way more external load than they need to be and just sort of keeping them at a level where they can go into a, into a competition uh, phase like a game and they're, at a level where they can sort of um, tolerate as much as they can because you don't know really how much they're going to tolerate in a game. So it's important to keep them at a level where they can sort of withstand that. And how, how do you think, like, in terms of S&C and being a S&C coach, how do you think, or how, how does it differ in terms of, in terms of, in relation to football as opposed to AFL? Because I know you've got a few mates um, who work at like Arsenal and Palace and I think, Correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of have got your eye potentially in the future on, you know, doing it um, in a football context. Yeah, for sure. Like I yeah, personally at, the, at this stage in my career, I don't have any experience working with football players. But from speaking to sort of colleagues and people in the industry that have, um, their sports science programs seem to be like developing each year, which is positive. It, it's also important to sort of note that sports science is sort of used as like a, as a tool to assist coaches run programs. It's, it's not the be all and end all. It's just sort of um, the departments, like the high performance department's role is to help facilitate the game plan of 
the coaches and help the coaches develop, help them, sorry, develop the physical attributes that the coaches want for their players to meet the demands of their tactics. Um, so looking into a, a football program, like I know the GPS monitoring track, like GPS monitoring and tracking is pretty big, like as it is in the AFL. Um, obviously know the importance of recovery protocols in a football environment because they're playing, like the top teams are playing every three or four days. So there's probably less of a focus on consistent, intense training throughout the week and more the training focus is sort of prepping the players tactically to prepare for the upcoming game. I think all the physical work would have been done in the preseason to get the players at a level to compete every three or four days. And I also think, mm. obviously, uh, Pep's big on it. If you read Marty Perinal's books, it talks about Pep's sort of um, obsession with nutrition being 100% for his guys. And, like, obviously that speaks volumes because if, if you're playing every two or three days, you need to be making sure you're getting the right sort of fueling for your, for your players and making sure they recover properly. And I also reckon the sports psychology would would have a big sort of um, domain in, the, in a professional football environment too. I have heard stories that the strength and conditioning component of a high-performance program isn't as sort of um, popular amongst footballers as it is in, say, Australian sports like AFL or rugby because – uh, you got players from like South America and other parts of like Europe, for example, and they get to such an elite level, uh, you know, in their hometowns playing for their clubs, their local clubs, where they might not have access to like a strength and conditioning facility. And then they get to a professional environment and they think, mm, I've gotten this far without ever lifting weights. Why should I start doing it now? So I think that's sort of a little bit of a, yeah. um, it's a little bit of a battle that you'll see performance staff in those high, high, level football environment sort of deal with and that just sort of comes down to educating them on the importance of it and and being injury resilient and helping them perform yeah so what, what would you say to those guys in that in that instance look like obviously it, it can be that's sort of it can be tough you know like that sort of situation like not everyone can handle that and i think you sort of need to be able to get your point across and sort of sell what you're trying to prescribe to these guys and explain and outline the importance of what you're doing and and why you're doing it because these players are they're pretty smart like they can work out if you're full of shit or not so you need to be able to be confident in what you're delivering and everything that you deliver needs to be backed up and validated and and you have to show to the players that the science says this and this can help you get your sort of take your game to the next level and get you in a position that you can perform at a high level consistently what 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 would you say is the big is there one big kind of standout thing that you you could kind of offer to someone that's not really been that involved in SNC? Is it is it more like injury prevention and kind of recovery, or would it be kind of the power like explosiveness that they could like develop? Yeah, look, I think it's I think you sort of you you sort of got to look at it like you got to have small wins with these guys in that environment. Like you probably got to have it come to some sort of compromise with them and say, hey, you know. This is what the this is what the the team have to do in the next four weeks. This is their four week training block. I know, maybe for example, you might not want to do all of it, so you might have a conversation with that individual about how you can sort of pick and choose what you want to do with them, and just get them on board. And then slowly, slowly, you can build, um, you know, a bit more into their program, and as they gain trust in what you're doing, and then eventually you can sort of feed them into the to the main program. But um, I know I start to hear stories um, about professional footballers and you see it a lot in the NBA where 
uh, a player would come into an environment, like say they sign for a new club and they they come into the club and they say, hey, I want to bring my own fitness coach in and I want to do my own strength classes or my strength sessions with my own guy. And then I know you saw um, Paul Pogba where when Oli Gunnar Solskjaer got asked about Paul Pogba's injuries and his response to the media was, oh, his guy said he should be ready soon or something like that. So you're starting to see these guys come in with a player and they actually can have a little bit of say, which can be quite sort of um, frustrating for a performance coach working with a professional team, but it comes down to working with those coaches as well and you know showing them as well that you want the best for the player and, and helping them achieve what they want to achieve. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Um, just to t- pick up on one thing you touched on before, the um, like the GPS aspect. I know from speaking to um, a couple of guys at City that obviously that's it's kind of massive as well, and it's widely used in the Premier League. I think you know all the big clubs use it. Obviously, you might not be um, you know sat in the head coaches' meetings, but just to kind of give a bit of insight into like how that's used is is when when the coaches kind of look at the data. Is, is there ever times when they'll look at someone's load and say? Oh, you know, we were going to start maybe this guy this weekend, but actually, you know, this data is saying that he's, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of in the red zone here, or he's done too much running. We kind of need to pull him out. Do those kind of conversations happen? Yeah, for sure. And I think it would probably be along the lines of obviously the coaches want their best players playing week in week out, but I think it would be more the sports science staff actually saying to the coaches, "Hey, I know this player's a big player." of ours and I know we need him in our big games but his training load hit X amount of kilometres let's say and he's he surpassed his thresholds and metrics and his chances are he's at a higher risk of getting injured so you might need to take that into consideration when you pick your next squad and I think the response you get back from the coach will vary coach to coach I know some coaches believe in sports science and like load monitoring more than others and that's fine like similar to the the South American and the European players, the coaches have gotten themselves to a level coaching elite players and having success without this stuff. And now that it's introduced, um, sort of getting them on board and getting them using this technology and buying into everything might be a bit of a a long process. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, And kind of from an outside perspective, looking looking at City and looking at the kind of current squad, who kind of really stands out to you as someone that um, like has kind of clearly kind of come on because of what looks like, and you know, this is, like I say, just from an outside perspective, but um, because of s and and because the reason I ask is the, the person that comes to my mind is having read um, Paul Ballas and Lou Martin's book. Um, and I think there's one of our, one of City's S&C coaches came and spoke about this um, subsequently it's clear that Zinchenko in particular is someone that has really come on from working almost directly with one of City's own S&C coaches. And yeah, in, in Paul's book, he kind of covers that obviously when he turned up from um, UFI and uh, I think the Ukrainian team, he was kind of so slight and, you know, natural for kind of a, you know, a young guy. And now if you look at him, like athletically, he's come on loads and okay, you know, he's not our first choice left back, but particularly over the last um, 18 months, he's been quite a key player. And I think you can see physically, you know, he's really kind of developed from that. Is that something you've noticed? And is there kind of any other guys you look at when you kind of look at the squad that you think that might have happened with? 
Yeah, yeah, I have noticed that with um, Zinchenko. And I also think that um, from what I've seen and heard, and I think it's touched on in that book as well, um, I think Nicolas Otamendi is known as one of the hardest trainers in the squad. Uh, he probably has to sort of um, make up for his like lack of consistent effort on the pitch and <laughs> so like then that's the thing like so players in that type of situation when they know they're sort of not having the best performances on the field they probably need to sort of focus on that aspect of their game a little bit more and be as professional as they can be and um yeah just i think that the a lot of the english players as well buy into it pretty well from what i've heard i'm not not necessarily at city but um the sports science and strength and conditioning in the UK is some of the best in the world. And I think some of those smaller clubs, um, you know, like your Crystal Palaces, for example, your Burnleys, your Bournemouth, those players um, buy into it uh, a lot more than, say, your players that come in from, like, other parts of Europe and South America. Yeah, no, as like as a kind of, um, as like a margin gain to try and, you know, catch the, um, yeah, kind of bigger clubs with the bigger resources kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. And like you hear stories about these players and like literally I've heard a story about Ashley Cole at Chelsea where like I think one of the sports scientists wanted to put, and don't quote me on this because it's just sort of word of mouth, but one of the players wanted him to wear a heart rate monitor and he just looks at him and he's like, there's no way I'm wearing that. And then, you know, the guy asked him again to put it on. And then I think five minutes later, uh, Ashley Cole was pissing on it on the training pitch, pissing on the heart rate monitor. <laughs> really? Yeah. But, yeah, back to your question. I do think that actually um, Fabian Delph was pretty big on it. He seemed that he was a player that looked like he was like pretty physical, like on the pitch. And, I like, you know, you see him sort of with his shirt off and he looks like he's, he's actually a bigger unit than you think he is. Yeah. No, for sure. I think Leroy is also someone that um, I think. I mean, I think Leroy is lucky in that he's he's blessed kind of anatomically, naturally. Um, in that yeah, his dad was a footballer, his mum was an incredibly good gymnast, and I think in Paul's book he says um, that Leroy's got the lowest rate of body fat in the entire city squad, something like six or seven percent. Um, he's just built like a he's just a raw raw athlete, isn't he? Could be a he literally could be a sprinter. Yeah, he he is an elite athlete. And was his mum a gymnast, or was she a, a long jumper or a high jumper? Uh, I think she might have done both. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but he's got some crazy genes. Um, he does. Yeah. Okay, so kind of given, obviously, given that you're in um, Oz, like I thought it'd be obviously, you know, you are from Sydney, so you're not going batting for Melbourne City but what's the tell us a little bit about that kind of partnership given that obviously City have have partnered up in the CFG with Melbourne like what do you know about that and what's your kind of perspective from within Australia yeah I think it's great for like the league and I think it's great that City are buying into clubs in smaller leagues around the world like I mean it's only going to grow those leagues and and grow those teams and have a high standard of football in those leagues. Um, I know before City took over, Melbourne City, uh, they were actually Melbourne Hearts and they had been in the league for a few seasons and, and uh, to be honest, they were struggling a little bit, you know, and like sort of City group board took them over. They gave the club that was only a few years old an identity and they've managed to sort of 
create some system where they loan players to each other and and I think it's only positive for the A-League. Like me personally, I'm not a Melbourne City fan. Um, being in Sydney and I've just been supporting Sydney FC for day one, but saying that I don't, like I don't hope that Melbourne City lose. Like I still sort of back them as a city sort of um, part of the city football group. But yeah, it, I think it can only be positive for these leagues. Do you get the criticism though that obviously a lot of, well, particularly rival funds level kind of saying that City are, you know, going for this essentially globalisation approach and trying to like almost, you know, the critics would say kind of like bastardise these clubs and um, use them as like a, a vehicle to, well, do what they, we did kind of, I suppose, a little bit with like Aaron Moy and make a quick buck and kind of just increase our global reach and kind of presence. Yeah, I can understand those arguments, but like at the same time, those clubs would be in a worse off position if it wasn't for them coming in and taking over. So I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing in the world. I, I do see it can be an issue where, for example, the A-League has a salary cap and um, you know Melbourne City have been in a situation where Manchester City will buy a player in the A-League and then they will loan them directly out to Melbourne City straight away and sort of avoid some form of tra- like some transfer between the two A-League clubs because City Manchester City will just get involved by the player and then loan them back out to Melbourne City. Yeah. So like stuff like that and I think they've actually been pinged for it in the past by the A-League and I don't think they can do that anymore. There's like tougher regulations around that, but yeah, I can understand that argument where it can be as a bit of a disadvantage to, to other teams if Manchester City can do that with Melbourne City, but yeah, like I said at the end They've of the day. They've ruled that out now, I think, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And But on the other side of the coin, it's helping players like Aaron Moy, um, you know, get a little bit of attention on a global stage. And the same with the likes of Daniel Arzani, who um, is one of Australia's hottest um, prospects at the moment. I know he Man- Manchester City bought him from Melbourne City um, and then they sort of kept him and then loaned him out to uh, Celtic and then he did his ACL on his first one of his first few games for Celtic and now he's sort of on the mend trying to make it again in, at a high level. But yeah, it's only good for players like that. And what about the A-League? Like, How how kind of followed is is that in Australia? Yeah, the A-League, it, it, it's, getting, it's getting more popular each year, which is good. Like, it, to me, it's still sort of only in its infancy. Like the league started in 2005. Um, we currently only have 11 teams with another expansion team looking to join the league next year. I don't know if that's still going to be happening with coronavirus, but yeah, as it stands, there's going to be another team joining us next year. And um, the season usually runs in the summer months of the year, so from October to May. Um, it's a little bit different where it... It sort of includes a 26-round regular season and then a final series playoff, um, which can be a little bit um, sort of up in the air where you've got a a team that might go the whole uh, year and finish first on the table, but they might not necessarily win the championship because they will lose in the finals. So it sort of mimics other Australian sports codes, but um, the only sort of thing at the moment where... Uh, it's a little bit up in the air about is where we take the league from here. I know there's talks of um, pretty much how we expand the game, whether uh, we want to give more A-League teams, like like give more licenses for A-League teams to come in and join the league, or we create a second division and then introduce promotion and relegation. 
Um, and we also can't forget that the A-League has a salary cap. So at, at the moment, all teams are sort of trying to work on a on an even framework with how they run and structure their football club. And how, how big is the like the playoffs in terms of number of teams at the end of the season? Uh, so I think it, the way it works, um, it's the top the top two teams will make the semi-finals automatically, and then for third, fourth, fifth, and sixth place will battle it out in week one of the finals, and then the winner of those games will play first and second in each semi-final, and then the winner of those two games will play in the grand final. Like it is, it's big. Like it's not. Wow! So someone, Australia, so a team can finish sixth, essentially bottom half of the table, and they could they could beat the team, win against the team that came first. Yeah, essentially, I don't. It doesn't happen often, but yeah, it's it's definitely there and it's available for a, a sixth team place team to win. Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, that seems that seems crazy to me. Um, but another kind of, thing with. Yeah, another thing with that is like you've got the salary cap and then obviously the successful A-League teams will gain qualification to the Asian Champions League and then they come up against, um, you know, like your Chinese teams and your Japanese teams where there might not be a salary cap or the salary cap might be a lot larger and then um, our Australian teams are at a disadvantage in that competition. Yeah, no, for sure. Because, I mean, some of the wages... And stuff getting spent, particularly in China, are mental, aren't they? Kind of yeah. some of the European teams. Never mind your guys with a salary cap. Um, yeah, okay, sure. cool. So I think kind of main last thing really to touch on is let's just have a let's just have a kind of quick chat about City. Obviously, things have been massively stunted to coronavirus, and um, you know the season is still very much up in the air at the moment, but. How do you look? Kind of looking back, how do you think? How do you think we've gone so far? What's your kind of take on on things this season? Oh, look in a whole, you you got to be a little bit disappointed with how the season sort of transpired for us. It's definitely below our high standards, and I don't think back in July uh, anyone would have said they would have saw what happened coming. But at, like at the end of the day, you got to stick by your team, and yeah, Liverpool probably deserved to win the title, but. Um, we should have been definitely well up for a title race and we should have been up to go for the three three peat, three in a row and I definitely think we should have pushed them further. And obviously with the Champions League, it was, you know, disappointing to see, like disappointing for us to not see how far we could have gone against that first game in Madrid. I mean, that was awesome for us and I really was optimistic that we could have gone far in that in that tournament. Who's the uh, who's the Premier League player of the season? If uh, as things stand, then do you go with uh, Sadio Mane or Jordan Henderson? Do they tickle your fancy? Uh, I think it's it has to be a Liverpool player, though. Like given sort of like the prior rulings in this competition and who and who wins these awards. Yeah, uh, you know it's we've never won one. Se- though. I know they always seem to favour Liverpool fan- Liverpool players. Sorry, and you know City players don't really get much of a look in, do they? Especially like. Kevin De Bruyne over the last few seasons and, you know, Raheem Sterling's and Bernardo Silva had one or two good seasons recently, you know? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's, it has to be De Bruyne, but, um, I mean, yeah, it's completing the argument until we know what's actually going to happen. Um, 
Yeah, no, on the se- so kind of on the season itself, obviously, I think it's kind of been ridiculous the way that the Premier League are kind of scrambling around with this um, and have just been very unimpressed with the way that they've been dealing with it. But, you know, I think it's it's an interesting thing to kind of have a view on. What do you, kind of as things stand, what, what, what would you do? What do you think? What do you think the situation will be? I mean, I suppose they're two separate questions, but um, yeah, first of all, like, what, what would you do? It's tough. It's really tough. Like, I don't think there's going to be an outcome that's going to please everybody. I mean, somebody's going to feel hard done by at the end of the day, whether it's Liverpool or someone like Sheffield United or Wolves or even the championship sides like Leeds and, and West Brom that looked like they were in for a good chance to move up. But... I don't know. It depends on sort of how the situation goes over the next few weeks and months. But um, at this stage, I don't think the, there's under any circumstances I'll finish the season as it stands and have a team like Aston Villa go down with a game in hand. I think that's ridiculous. Um, I could see them definitely maybe getting those those teams that have played one less game to play another fixture behind closed doors and maybe finish the season on 29 rounds and or maybe go to, to a slightly shortened season. But I think either way, um, I guess Liverpool won't be surpassing a 100-point season, which is a major positive. <laughs> yes, well, hopefully not. I mean, it would be it would be incredible if uh, after everything, for whatever reason, they don't get crown, t- um, crown title winners. I mean, they're literally, I think they're mathematically six points off it. Um I'd stage. be cheering if they did if if they finished the season null and void and Liverpool don't get to win it. I'd be absolutely cheering. Yeah, it would be it would be funny, wouldn't it? Um, correct. It has to take a global kind of pandemic to prevent them from uh, from getting it. No, pretty pretty crazy. What do you think about the what about the prospect of behind closed doors, kind of the Premier League playing playing the season out? You know, in the coming months with no fans and just all the games being broadcast. How do you? What's your kind of view on that? Oh, it's definitely not ideal, but I think under these circumstances and given the current situation on the table, if that's what has to happen in order to sort of give everyone a fair crack at finishing in in a, whatever place they want to finish on the table and finishing the season off, then I think they probably should just go ahead with it. And I know the TV rights deal, uh, like in the TV broadcasters wouldn't sort of want that situation to happen, but... It doesn't look like it's going to be slowing down anytime soon where you can have 50,000, 60,000 people in a stadium together at once. Yeah, no, for sure. But, but do you, so just to be clear, you kind of take that over um, them, like just completely not avoiding it if, if there's a possibility that, that you can kind of see, see the season out. I mean, as a, from a city perspective, I would obviously like them to not avoid the season so Liverpool don't win it. And we essentially retain the title but um, yeah I do think that if they have to what play out the season behind closed doors and they should as much of as much as it would suck to the fans and people watching it at home I think it just sort of has to be done given the circumstances yeah no fair enough um, okay cool right last thing before um, we kind of uh, we wrap up um, I just wanted to ask you particularly about David Silver so um, you know, hopefully, if if we do end up playing any more games for the rest of the season, it sounds as if I think Jack's Jack Gorn's done a story in the Mail that um, Silva will be open to kind of extending his contract and um, seeing out his final kind of few games. Um, and I think this marks ten years for him at City. Um, 
since he joined in 2010 from Valencia. Just, yeah, speak to me a bit like about him and um, kind of what he means to you as a City fan. Yeah, he, he's been a pretty special player for us, hasn't he? Um, I still remember his first goal against Blackpool where he sort of did imagine you're playing FIFA and did the circle X, circle fake shot. <laughs> yeah, 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 the like fake shot. Finesse shot it to the, over the goalkeeper into the goal. I mean, that sort of, and I think Andrew touched on it in his podcast, that sort of signaled to us as fans that, hey, we've got someone special here and didn't obviously think at the time that the likes of him and Aguero would play with us for as long as they have but you know you take your hat off to him and everything like that he's done for the club and especially those hard times he was going through um behind the scenes and I know it's touched on in the documentary but you know I wish him all the best and if he goes to into Miami with David Beckham then good luck to him but I think I saw something in the in the news that AC Milan were looking to to get him on board and I, I say good luck to him if he goes there and finishes his career at a club like AC Milan you prefer him with her or without her? Ah, uh, he he looks pretty shocking without her, doesn't he? I will say, <laughs> I know. I think it. I think he got a hair transplant in that period of time, and that's why he shaved his head. Yeah. And I've yeah. got a suspicion that he sort of got in Kyle Walker's ear and said, "Hey, my guy did a really good job. You should probably look into it too, because I know he's been sporting a shaved head lately, and I reckon he's probably going to have another full set of hair in another twelve or eighteen months' time." Yeah, no, I think that's probably true. Although I think Kyle Walker's got quite a bit on his plate at the moment from uh, from what you read in the media. Yeah, he does definitely. <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll see about that one. Um, anyway, nice one, Chris. Um, really enjoyed that. Thanks for coming on. No worries. Thanks for having me on, mate. And thanks to you and and the rest of the guys on the pod. You guys do a really good job and. There's been a lot of instances like over the last 12, 18 months where listening to the pod has been a real highlight of my week leading up to big games. And thanks for all the content that you guys put out and looking forward to hearing it in the future. No, nice one. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that a lot. Cool. Um, and yeah, to all the listeners, um, yeah, keep tuned in. We'll, um, we'll keep churning them out um, even through this uh, kind of coronavirus mad, mad time. Um, but yeah, as always... Have a good week. Have a good week, everyone. Enjoy Easter and um, up the blues.